Leah mentioned earlier uh, that this is Palm Sunday, and just let me remind you what that, the significance of that is. Uh, we don't um, follow a traditional church calendar, but we move into this week, sometimes called Holy Week. It starts with Palm Sunday, and that was a day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and uh, he was um, given praise by hundreds and hundreds of people, and they laid down palm branches in honor, and they took off their coats and uh, allowed him to ride over them on the donkey, and he was a great hero on that day. But by Friday of that same week, some of those same people voted to crucify him. On Thursday night of that week, uh, Jesus spent his last night in the upper room with his followers, and he had the Last Supper. After that, he was arrested, and uh, he was put on trial. And by Friday, uh, the plan was to crucify him, and he was dead Friday afternoon. And it seemed like everything that had been hoped for was a total failure. And then came Sunday, and that's Easter Sunday. And the tomb was empty, and Jesus was raised from the dead, and it demonstrated his victory over sin and death and the power of Satan. That's the week we come into. This is a great time to reflect on what the death of Christ means to you. I'm not talking about Palm Sunday today, however. Today we're in Luke chapter 6, and I want to continue with uh, Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Plain which is not the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. This is a smaller message he gave. Uh, I think it's a separate message. It's, the whole sermon is Luke uh, 6, 17 through 49. We're going to focus on verses 37 through 49. So I hope you'll find that passage in your Bible. So let's get started. Cognitive sophistication does not attenuate the bias blind spot. I say that again. Cognitive sophistication does not attenuate the biased blind spot, which is the name of a research study done in 2012. And this research supports the idea that we all have blind spots. Um, The research shows that we have a tendency to cut ourselves way more slack than we allow others to have. Jonah Lair explains this in the New New Yorker magazine. He, He writes this. He said, when considering the irrational choices of a stranger, for instance, we are forced to rely on how they behave. We see their biases from the outside which allows us to see their errors. However, whenever whenever assessing our own bad choices, we tend to engage, engage in an elaborate introspection. We study our motivations and search for our relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to, to therapists and ruminate on the beliefs that lead us astray. In other words, we have a tendency to have great rationalizations when it comes to our own uh, so-called weaknesses. The report further states, as an example, if we drive crazy through traffic, it's because we have a good reason. We have an important meeting to uh, attend. 
And we don't usually do it this way, but there was a special occasion. But if someone else cuts us off in traffic, it's simple. We see it, we observe it, they are a jerk. Jonah Lair concludes, our biased blind spots are largely unconscious. So, I don't know if you're unconscious this morning. They're largely unconscious, which means they remain invisible to self-analysis and resistance to intelligence. In other words, being smarter won't help you see your own junk. In fact, more intelligence may add layers to the problem. What do you think of that? So, cognitive sophistication does not attenuate the biased blind spot. There you have it. Jesus understood this long before 2012. He could see it in human nature, and especially in dealing with the sophisticated leadership of Israel's religious leaders. The the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the the teachers of the law. Uh, In Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 49, which we just described as the Sermon on the Plain, um, we focus on this last section now in verses 37 through 49. And uh, we're going to see that Christ's followers need to have the right kind of heart. So let's look at Luke chapter 6, and we're going to begin with verse uh, 37. And here's what Jesus had to say. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For which measure you use, it will be measured to you. So let's, let's talk about this. First, we begin with this principle of sowing and reaping. It's actually been introduced earlier uh, in uh, his sermon. But Jesus had this uh, metaphor, an agricultural term of sowing and reaping. You uh, sow a seed and it grows and later you harvest something. Uh, The Apostle Paul understood this, and i just like to see this in Galatians chapter 6. as uh, the Apostle Paul uh, applied this, because he understood Jesus very well. He said, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. And here it is, here's the principle, a man reaps what he sows. And then he goes on, and uh, he's going to talk about the spiritual life, and how that's a metaphor for the spiritual life. Uh, Whoever sows to please their flesh, their human nature, from the flesh will reap destruction. That's, that's going to be the end game without Christ. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Those who are born again, those who have placed their faith in Christ, those who have forgiven will, um, will reap eternal life. But there's more to this. In verses uh, 37 and 38 that I just read, uh, Jesus divides this into two parts, a negative and then a positive. And the negative is, do not judge and you will not be judged. 
Judging is about evaluating and making a decision based on what you know. Jesus said, don't judge. Well, is Jesus against the law courts? Nope. Is Jesus against justice? Nope. Is there ever a place to judge? Maybe. But we're not there yet. And Jesus had this way of teaching to get everybody's attention. Do not judge. Can that be really be true? And um, he, he goes on next and he says, Do not condemn. And you will not be condemned. Uh, to condemn is to pronounce one guilty. It's to pronounce strong disapproval. Um, so Jesus instructs, instructs his disciples not to judge others. And uh, his, the audience, we have to remember, is the audience was used to har- harsh moral judgment. The audience were used to teachers who were very negative and condemning and about how bad the people were. That's what they were used to. And what Jesus is saying is very strikingly different than what they had uh, been taught. Jesus is teaching, give people some grace. Cut them some slack. Show them some mercy. If you uh, judge people, expect people to judge you. If you condemn people, Expect people to condemn you. If you are a person who's characterized by judging others, characterized by condemning others, expect people to condemn you. But not only that, don't expect God to cut you any slack either. Because there is a now, a here and a now, and then there's an eternity in the not yet The positive is to forgive and you will be forgiven. To forgive is to let people off the hook. It's to grant a pardon. It's, it's to let go of your offense and your resentment. Um, if you are ex- an, a forgiving person, expect people to be forgiving toward you. In fact, if you are a forgiving person, expect God to be forgiving toward you. And he's not teaching a way of salvation at all. He's teaching teaching a character of someone who follows Christ. Okay? He's not teaching the way of salvation. He's teaching the character of one who follows Christ. Um, Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Jesus wants his followers to be generous. I don't know how many times that's coming through in in, uh, his teachings. He wants us to be generous with our money, with our resources, with our material things. He wants us to give, to be generous. And um, he even makes promise here. He says, it'll be given to you a good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. Now, he's using a first century concept from agriculture the whole idea of uh, going uh, to receive uh, a, a cash gift uh, through grain. And uh, p- people typically wore long robes. And if they were going to carry grain, they could just pull up their robe and make a little circle and have it filled. And it would be filled 
to overflowing. But it was not just grain that had recently been harvested. It's grain that's pressed down and it's totally condensed. And the idea is it's a, it's a generous provision. It's a, an abundant blessing. And there's a sense here that's, uh, that's not so much about giving to people and expecting people to give back to you, but it's really a whole lot about what you can expect from God, that God will provide for you. God will provide for your needs. God will provide for your family's needs. And so there's two positive things. Forgiving should be a characteristic of a Christ follower, and giving, being generous. And this whole idea of giving, it starts with generosity toward God. Um, according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, it's possible for a follower of Christ to rob God by not giving a portion back to God. There is plenty in Scripture about generosity and about how God loves a cheerful giver and about the decision to give it just amazes me when I see Christ followers who don't give. And God's, um, there's, a, there's tons of ways to give. There's tons of needs in our world. You know that. We have many, many good choices. But you know, God's primary plan always starts with his church. His church is plan A. And other ministries are an extension of plan A. They are not plan A, and yet our culture gets, Christian culture gets so confused when it comes to the area of generosity with God. So I got off on a little aside there. I guess you'll just have to forgive me, okay? (laughs) Verses 39 through 40, there's a parable of the blind man, and um, he also told them this parable, can a blind man Lead a blind man. Now, can you picture that just for a minute? A blind man out walking, headed in a direction, and he's leading another blind man. Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So, um, Jesus is talking about Leadership, and let me just uh, explain that. Um, poor leadership can end with serious consequences. A blind man who was a leader and headed in a certain direction, and he's trying to lead somebody else's blind, they're not going to accomplish their goal. In fact, when you picture the blind leading the blind, uh, it's pretty humorous. But Jesus is not so much talking about someone who has a disability. He's talking about spiritual blindness. Somebody who is spiritually blind trying to lead someone else who is spiritually blind don't expect to end up with any eternal results or eternal rewards. The blind cannot lead the blind. Um... The religious leaders of Israel, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, all of those leaders were to be teachers of God's people. 
And they were to guide God's people. They were, in fact, called guides, spiritual guides, letting, helping them know who God is and what God is like and how to live for God. And that was the purpose of these guides, of these leaders. And the problem is, and this is what he's teaching uh, the people in the first, Jesus is teaching the people. The blind can't lead the blind. Do you see? And um, he's talking about the leadership of the nation. They have biased blind spots. They don't see them. Uh, In verse 40, teachers who have a false view of God and his word will produce students who think likewise. So he says, a student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Scribes and Pharisees and priests all had students. They all had disciples. And if they were spiritually blind, how were they to produce somebody with spiritual discernment and spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding? How were they to pass on to anyone else how to know God, how to be in relationship with God? Because they were spiritually blind. Jesus, in talking with his disciples, wants them to be different. He doesn't want them to be judgmental and condemning. He wants them to be forgiving. He wants them to be generous. And he wants them to be spiritually connected to him. The student is not above the teacher. But when he's fully trained, he will be like their teacher. Jesus wanted his followers to be like him. That was the goal. Is to to follow him. To listen to his teaching. To embrace it. To think about it. To reflect upon it. To to see how this applies in an everyday situation and then just move forward one step at a time, one day at a time and follow Christ. So our goal is to be like Jesus. And just a thought question here. Are we progressing to become more like Jesus? If you think about your own life over this, the past six months or a year, Do you see yourself changing? Do you see yourself becoming more like Christ? Do you see yourself growing as a Christ follower? I like what the Apostle Paul, I never understood this in my early years. 1 Corinthians 11.1, the Apostle Paul said, uh, (laughs) Do we have 1 Corinthians 11.1 in it? Maybe we don't. Here's what he said. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul says, follow my example as. He said, it's not about following me. It's not about you becoming like me. It's about you becoming like Christ. And I've always uh, felt pretty uncomfortable as a pastor standing up before people and asking them, to try to teach, and then I have to live every day. And I, I find great comfort in, in, in this passage. Follow me as I follow Christ. Don't become like me. Become like Jesus. In verses 41 and 42, we see the problem of hypocrisy. 
And uh, let's read about that. I have blind spots when I read sometimes. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so Jesus deals with this problem of hypocrisy in verses 41 and 42. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who has the public persona, you know, puts on the mask. This is who I want you to see, but this is not really who I am. Uh, Someone who has a public persona of being um, really a good guy, high ethical standards, but that's not what their personal life is like. Uh, hypocrites hold higher standards for other people than they do for themselves because they have biased blind spots. Higher standards for others. By the way, parents, just stop and think about that for a minute. Do you hold higher standards for your own kids than you do for yourself? That's really dangerous for Christian parents. So I know a lot about it. Because I've tried that on three kids. Never really worked. And they seem to be able to point out my inconsistencies. So um, Jesus uses it. And Jesus had a lot of humor, if you read about it. You ought to just go through and study the New Testament and see the Gospels and see the humor of Jesus It was a very serious time. He says, you know, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? So this is from the carpenter shop. Do you think Jesus ever had sawdust in his eye? You bet he did. And and he uses this work. This one guy's got the plank. If you can imagine, this is like a beam that holds up the roof of the house. And he's got it in one eye. Oh, I noticed you have a little sawdust. You're bad. I'm going to help you. I'm going to fix you. And the idea is he's got this huge problem in his own life and he has this biased blind spot. So how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Jesus is talking about the leadership of Israel. The people understood that as he told this parable. The people knew what he was talking about. This Religion that's been so hard to live with. Jesus gets it. It's not what God really wants. And uh, people were just fascinated by Jesus' teaching. Also in uh, verse 42, humble people deal with their own faults before offering correction to another. Jesus is looking for humble people who recognize that they're sinners, that they fail, So that when they come to other people, they're going to be gracious and kind. And not have this view that um, if you were as spiritual as me, you wouldn't do what you do. But humble. Uh, Jesus calls these people hypocrites. 
Jesus is looking for humble followers who will forgive others and be generous toward others. But Jesus does suggest, going back, is, is, there, is there really ever going to be a time that you judge other people? Jesus does suggest here, if you do remove the plank, if you do get the sawdust out of your own eyes, you might be able to see to help someone else. And that's what we're going to talk about. Is there a place, this is a question, is there the place for one Christ follower offering another Christ follower correction or reproof or rebuke? Or we could just say, is there a place for one Christ follower to judge another Christ follower? And I just want to show you a string of passages here. The first one is uh, Proverbs uh, 12.1. Do we have Proverbs 12.1? There we go. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. This is uh, way before Jesus. Uh, whoever loves discipline, that discipline is about training, uh, loves knowledge. But whoever hates correction is stupid. Correction comes from someone. It usually comes from someone else. Uh, often in the book of Proverbs, it should come from the parents first. Correction. Uh, someone pointing out that, hey, you're out of line right now, and this is what you need to do to change, and this is what you need to do to get back on the path. That's correction. And um, the fool hates correction. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool spurns a parent's discipline. That's why kids need Training because they don't always appreciate parents' input, advice, instruction. But whoever heeds correction shows prudence. To take correction, information in, learn from it, evaluate it, and grow. It shows prudence. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, is to the church at Thessalonica, and the Apostle Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, who acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. He's talking about the church leaders at the church in Thessalonica. And they have this job. They're supposed to be working hard. They're supposed to be examples of Christ's followers. And they also have this role of a, providing admonishment from time to time, for offering correction. That's the role of leaders in the church. Hold them in the highest regard, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So there is a place for correction. There is a place for admonishment, at least according to the Bible. Colossians 3.16 is another one of those passages. And the Apostle Paul writes, Let the message... Of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Let the message of Christ, let Christ, let his word dwell in you richly. Let it be, may you be filled up with it so that you can think 
more and more like him. And as you teach, as you help each other, as you give instruction to each other, and sometimes, yes, admonish. But it doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to be guilt-laden. It's trying to help somebody see how to walk more faithfully with Christ. And it can even happen through our music. You ever have an experience where you come to worship and you sing about God and you're reminded about who he is and what he's done and God begins to move your heart. Maybe uh, when you came in, it was a little bit out of sorts. Maybe you hadn't been reflecting and just you just come back into, yeah, I was wrong. I should do this. I should do this. And it's just between you and God. Nobody else knows what happens. Even music can provide admonishment to our souls. So is there a place? Yeah, there's an appropriate place. I like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, speak the truth in love. If the purpose is love. In Galatians 6, he, he tells us to be gentle. And the word picture there is like a surgeon who is gently repairing uh, realigning a broken bone needs to be realigned but it requires kindness and gentleness in doing the work by the way i found that christians don't always appreciate that even with your best intentions i find that sometimes christians think if i offer some of my advice about the word of god and what it has to say they think i'm judgmental Maybe you've found that too. You can't always expect everybody to appreciate what you have to say. But the whole thing is about grace and mercy and kindness and being forgiving. And yet we still have high standards and yes, there's a place for correction and there's a place for admonishment. See, the word judge means to discern. It means to divide. We have to reflect we have to be able to see good and evil wisdom and foolishness we have to divide we have to put things in categories that's what it means and yes there is a place for that if we take the speck out of our own eye and hopefully there's not a plank there okay And then uh, we come to the problem of the heart in verses 43 through 45. Um, Here's a well-known parable. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor bad tree bears good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn thorn bushes or grapes from briars. That's not too hard to understand. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So um, the fruit tree metaphor is kind of a parallel to the nature of the human heart. You know, Actually, you know, grape tree, do grapes grow on trees? Well, actually, some of the 
grapevines that are very old look like trees. And they often spoke of uh, the idea of a shrub or a vine uh, being like a tree. And um, a heart that has been changed by Christ brings out good things. That's what Jesus wants his followers to know. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A person's speech will ultimately identify what's in his heart. Uh, A person who judges other, a person who condemns, is giving off all kinds of clues about what's in their heart. A person who holds a grudge, a person who is bitter, displays their heart by what they have to say. The Apostle Paul gave uh, these instructions, which I think is very helpful as we think about the heart. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, he says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And Jesus is really calling on our hearts right here. Think before you speak. What is in your heart? Here's how to speak. Um, Don't let any unwholesome word. Boy, when that... When I put that principle, a standard, in front of me, I, re- I need to be careful how I speak to people. Um, only what is helpful for the building others up. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Because our words can bring great grief to God. A Christ follower spewing out things that are dishonoring to God, that are hurtful to other people. That displays our heart, and it brings grief to God. Just like you as a parent, when your child just goes, continues to go against what you've instructed again and again and again, it just brings grief to you as a parent, and this brings grief to God. And the next slide. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Those are hard issues. And this is to Christians, by the way, because it is possible for Christians to have these things in their heart. Get rid of bitterness. That's anger turned inward that just begins to boil under the surface. And it doesn't produce anything healthy. Rage and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And so he's asking for a heart alignment with your, because your speech shows what's in your heart. And Jesus died to bring change to our life, and he's made that possible. And we need to evaluate. Sometimes we need to ask forgiveness from God. And sometimes we need to ask forgiveness uh, from, for, from each, with each other. And then, does this sound like Jesus? This is the Apostle Paul. 
But this is what Jesus wanted to convey to his followers in the Sermon on the Plain. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Don't spend your time judging and condemning each other. Um, Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And the point for us who are Christ followers is if Jesus died on the cross for us, if he paid the penalty for our sin, and if he offered us forgiveness, how should we treat other people with grace and humility and mercy and love? Remember loving your enemies? It's in the same sermon, by the way. It was just last week. The same sermon from Jesus because Jesus wants people to see what he's like through us. We are his body. We are left here to do his work and we are to represent him. Whether it's loving our enemies or whether we, it's how we treat each other. And lastly, in verses 46 through 49, we talk about the right foundation. And let's read that last section. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and put them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. So Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? The question I want to ask us is, why do you call Jesus Lord? Maybe you don't. Why, those of you who call yourself Christ followers, why do you call Jesus Lord? Or is Jesus your Lord? I think there are several implications here. If you call Jesus Lord, now we know a whole lot more about Jesus than they did in the first century because we have the entire Bible. They had Jesus, and he taught them a lot. But a lot more came after Jesus went back to heaven through the other writings in the New Testament all the way through the book of Revelation. To call Jesus Lord means to acknowledge his power, his authority, his sovereignty, his influence, his control. He is king of kings and lord of lords and one day every knee will bow before him. I've always wondered what that's going to be like. Is this going to be a great joy to see Jesus when he comes and just to bow down in great honor and admiration? Or will I be kind of forced? Maybe the knees are broken as they go down. If Jesus is Lord, that means he's master and I am not. And I am to be the servant. And that's the whole picture of the New Testament, is to be a servant of Christ and a servant for Christ.
if Jesus is Lord and I'm his servant, then when it comes to obedience, I don't have the opportunity to hem-haw around and decide, will I obey or will I not obey? Will I obey or will I choose to be disobedient? That is not even on the table. Because I have already decided Jesus is Lord. I'm the servant. My job is to follow. It's not to decide whether today is right or today I want to do my own thing. If Jesus is Lord, I just need to know what he wants today. I know a whole lot about what he wants today. It's written in the scriptures. To be kind and considerate, forgiving and generous. There's all, a lot of information about what God's will is for my life. I would suggest for your life too. And then uh, verses 47 through 48, I've described it as a solid foundation engineered by God because that's what Jesus was referring to. And um, I titled this message, Obedience is the Key, and I referred back to um, one of our ladies' group who were focusing on hearing the voice of God, and, the, and they had this phrase, obedience is the key, and they even passed out keys to all the women. The key was a reminder that obedience is the key, and it still is. Obedience is the key. This is what Jesus was referring to in verse 47, and everyone who comes to me, begins a relationship with Jesus, and hears my words, and puts them into practice, Because that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to put this into practice. That's living by faith. The just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a one day at a time thing after we begin this relationship with Jesus to putting his words into practice like a man building a house. Home builders in Israel in the first century understood pretty clearly you really need to build on something like rock. Because if we want this house to stand, there's going to be a lot of weather coming in the days ahead. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it rains hard, sometimes flooding happens, and this house needs to stand, and so we've got to build it on something really solid. Because over time, this house will face many, many storms, and this house needs to stand. And the person who follows Jesus and puts his teaching into practice. It's just like that house built on that solid foundation. Because when the storms of life come, and they will, and they always do, and they can be painful and tragic and difficult, and it can be about family and health and loss of life and loss of financial resources... All kinds of storms come in this life. Jesus reminds us that if we build our lives on a firm foundation, we're going to stand. We're going to have eternal rewards. And we're going to have the strength of Jesus every day to face what we have before us. Because we're on a solid rock. But the weak foundation engineered by human religion, the religion of the first century, 
is where this starts in verse 49. The one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Matthew says a man, a man who builds his house on the sand. Here, Luke records uh, building on the ground. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and destruction was complete. Same is true for a person. First of all, a person who never builds her life on a solid foundation at all, who never builds their life on the person of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Because there is a final storm coming, a final judgment coming, and it's going to sweep everything away without Christ. And this and the destruction will be complete, and it's described in the New Testament as an eternal destruction. One of the things that concerns me is well, that Jesus doesn't answer here, and it's not part of his purpose. But I have this question, is what about the person who begins on the solid foundation, but then is wishy-washy about following Jesus' instructions? And there's so many benefits that they miss out on this life, and there's going to be so many things that they miss out on the next life. Oh yeah, they got on the right foundation, but that's about it. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that because we're all going to face the judgment seat of Christ and be evaluated for how we lived. Judgment seat of Christ refers only to Christ's followers. The judgment for unbelievers is going to be in Revelation 20, the the great white throne judgment. So I, I have one final question, and the question is this. Why do you call Jesus Lord? What does that mean to you? Why do you call Jesus your Lord? Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus' instructions in Luke chapter 6. Father, uh, just uh, give us time to reflect right now, to think about our own lives before you and about how, we've, how we choose to live. God, are we people that find ourselves judging other people and evaluating other people and criticizing other people for their shortcomings? When we speak, do we find ways to build people up? Are we people who show mercy to others? Are we people who have a bias, blind spot in our eye? Lord, would you show us what that might be if there is? Would you convict us if that's what we need from your Holy Spirit? Father, um, 
Help me to see my heart the way you see it. Help me to see when my words to others are not kind and are not beneficial. And finally, Lord, would you just show us what you want from each one of us to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.